we'll move into our, our, our message for this morning. We're going to talk to you about Christmas. Big shocker there, right? At Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And I know as Christians, we can whine and complain about the commercialization of Christmas, and I get that. A lot of, in a lot of ways, we, we've lost the focus of what Christmas is about. And yet, rather than choosing to grumble and complain and whine about where culture is going, we can celebrate the fact that Christmas is still a part of our culture, that it is a religious holiday, and at its heart is Christ, Christ Mass. And so we get an opportunity to point people to Jesus, hopefully in a more pointed way, during this season. And so that's the hope. At Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And as Christians, we believe that we should follow this God who became a baby, who grew into a man, and eventually died for our sins. And then rose again three days later into new life to give us the power to live in reconciled relationship to Father God. My question for you this morning is this. What does that look like? What does it look like to live in relationship with God? What does it look like to be a Christian? Now, in a room this size with this many folks, I have no idea what your bringing up was, whether you grew around church or not. You grew up in America, I'm guessing most of you, maybe a couple of you didn't, but I'm guessing most of you have at least been exposed to the idea of Jesus and Christianity. And if we went around a room this size and asked you the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What should Christians look like? I'm guessing that we would get as many different answers as we have people. Some of them would be similar, but we would all have different answers. We would all have different expectations and different ideas of what it means and what it looks like to be a Christian. Some of those answers would be more law-based. You might come up to a person and say, hey, what does it mean to be a Christian? And they might give you an answer that starts talking about a bunch of rules. Christians look like people who go to church. Christians look like people who, who follow this rule or, or that rule. Or people, or Christians look like people who follow this tradition. This is the right way to be a Christian. You ought to be a good person. You've got to help enough people. That's what being a Christian is all about. Other people might answer in a more grace-based way, but they might take it too far to the extreme. They might say, these, these Christians are all about the rules. We're not all about that. We're not about any rules, right? There's grace. Jesus died, and so let's go. I'm not really that concerned about how I live. I don't think God's that concerned. Honestly, if you ask me, I think God's more concerned about my happiness. And here's what makes me happy right? This is what being a Christian is all about. It's about, about following my own idea, my own rules, freedom, grace. It's about my happiness. And so I don't really concern myself about all of this fuss about sin. Those are some answers and some expectations that we might, we might hear from folks. We say, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it's following the rules. Or, well, it doesn't matter about the rules, just grace and forgiveness. Now, if you've been with us, you will know that neither one, of those, neither one of those sides of that coin is correct. We've been talking a lot about this, so I'm not going to go too far in depth, but to refresh us and for those who haven't been with us, I want you to know that responding to God's law and His grace, legalism, that's only rules, or uh, license, that's no rules, neither one of those is correct. Neither one of those is correct. We can't just throw out the rules altogether. Grace doesn't mean we have a license to sin, and God didn't die so that we could just follow a rule book. Jesus came so that we could have a relationship with the Father. He came to show us his love. He came to show us and help us know him more personally. 
This is why God is always happy to see us. It's because of what Jesus has done, not our ability to follow the rules or not follow the rules. God is always happy to see us. That's what grace means. He's always happy to see us, not because of anything we do or anything we fail to do. Nothing can change that fact. It's only and all about what Jesus Christ has done for us and only for those who put their faith alone in Jesus. They have that knowledge that God is always happy to see us. It's about faith. But that doesn't answer my first question that I laid out for us this morning. Still, we have, we're, we're, we're left with the question, what does that look like? What does it look like not to be rules only? What does it look like not to be grace only? What does it look like to live in relationship with Jesus? What does it look like for those of us who have been saved by faith through grace alone to live with Jesus Christ? The answer to that question might surprise you. And I hope, I hope that after we look at Romans 7, it will encourage you. It will encourage you. Paul, the apostle Paul, he tells us of his experience of being a Christian in Romans 7, verses 14 through 25. And you can open there, but as you're opening there, I want to just help you or remind you a little bit about who Paul is. Who is, who is writing the book of Romans? If there ever was a super Christian, Paul fits that bill, right? He does. He does. First of all, Paul authored over 13 books, right at 13, some think maybe Hebrews, so we could maybe say 14 books of the New Testament. Now, if I were hiring another pastor here, and he showed up with his resume, and it said, authored 13 books of the Bible, we don't even have to have an interview, right? You're like, you're in. You authored over half of the New Testament. That's a pretty good resume builder. So that's Paul. He's wrote over half of the New Testament. Paul also had this crazy conversion testimony, right? Jesus literally knocked him off his high horse, literally. He's on the road to Damascus thinking he's doing the will of God and he's persecuting Christ's followers. He's going to jail them and kill them and beat them into submission. He is on his high horse, literally and metaphorically speaking. He thinks he's right, everyone else is wrong, and he's about to bring the pain in the name of God. And Jesus shows up in a vision and audibly speaks to Paul, knocks him off his horse, and says, why are you persecuting me? Then he strikes him blind. For three days, he steals his sight to remind Paul that even though he thinks he sees, he couldn't be further from the truth spiritually he's blind and so the Lord lets him sit in blindness physically for three days and then he sends one of his servants to heal him three days later he receives his sight back and after that this interaction with Jesus he hears a voice from heaven everyone else that's with him they don't understand the voice they hear it as thunder it's a crazy they see the light it's a crazy crazy conversion story and after that Paul is forever changed I'm not talking about a gradual change. I'm talking like, like a turnaround. Three days, he is a different person. He's on his road to Damascus. He is going to kill Christians for believing in Jesus. And three days later, he becomes a messenger proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and everyone should follow him. He starts preaching three days later the same message that he was murdering people for three days before. That is a sharp turnaround. A very sharp turnaround. He went from a guy that used to persecute people for believing the gospel to a preacher of the gospel in three days because he met Jesus. And on top of that, 
He didn't just preach the gospel in words. He brought the power of God. In Acts, 11, or Acts 19, 11 through 12, we're told that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even his handkerchiefs, his undergarments, his aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Now, y'all might have some holy underwear. <laughs> they weren't holy like Paul, right? Right? For all you dads out there, you're welcome as a dad joke. The rest of you, I'm not sorry. <laughs> right? That's Paul. Even his, the clothes that he touched was healing people, driving out demons. He healed the lame. He healed the blind. He did all kinds of different miracles. And my favorite is what he did for a man named Eutychus. A man named Eutychus. You can read about this in Acts 20. But essentially, Paul is a preacher. He got a little long-winded in one of his messages. There's a man named Eutychus who apparently was sitting on the windowsill listening to Paul preach. And he's droning on and on. And eventually he fell asleep. And then he fell out of a second story window. And I'm assuming broke his neck and he died. Now as a pastor, as a preacher, this story encourages me to no end, right? <laughs> I've laid some eggs over the years, right? And being boring and all of that. But I've never pulled a Paul. I've never bored anyone to death yet. That's not happened. That's not happened, right? Now, we would see this as a tragedy, but Paul doesn't. He sees this as an opportunity to testify about the miraculous power of God. And he goes over to Eutychus, who was dead, and he resurrects him. He raises him from the dead. That's the kind of stuff Paul is up to. Now, Having heard who Paul is, what does he say it looks like to love and follow Jesus? Does it look like superpowers and perfection? Always walking in victory? Or does it look like something different than that? Let's read Romans 7, 14 through 25 to find out. Romans 7, verse 14 out of the NIV. It says, We know... That the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do, not, I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, is it, no longer I, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law 
of sin. Okay. Now, I have to say before we get into this that theologians have argued about whether or not Paul is talking about his experience pre-Christian or after he's believed in Jesus. Some might say, well, well, Paul's talking about his experience before he's encountered Christ and before he, he's become a believer. That's what he's talking about. And the only thing I have to say to folks that would make that argument is explain to me verse 22. First of all, Paul is writing in the present, right? He's writing in the present tense. So as if it's something that, that he's currently experiencing. And then verse 22, he says, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Now, let me just ask you this. Does that sound like someone who knows and loves Jesus or someone who's never met Jesus? Sounds like the former, doesn't it? In my inner being, I delight in God's law. I've never met a person who doesn't know Jesus or hates Jesus say, man, in my inner being, I really just love God's rules. I love his law. I just want to be righteous. I delight in that, in the core of my being. That's what makes me and another guy who carries a whole lot more theolo theological weight than me, a guy named Tim Keller, among many others, other theologians that I respect, that's what makes us believe that Paul is talking about his present experience as a born-again Christian. He's saying there's a lot, or he, he says a lot of do, 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 don't do, do, right? It's kind of confusing. So what's Paul driving at here? What's he trying to say? Here's what I think he's trying to say. I think he's trying to clue us into the fact that being a Christian is a struggle. It's a struggle. It's a struggle between the Spirit of God that has taken up residence inside our heart when we believe in Jesus and that old man that's lost his power, that old sinful flesh that's lost its power, but is still present in all of us. That still fights against us. He says there is an internal battle going on within us. Even though Paul's a new creation, he knows he's a new creation. He knows he has new desires, but sometimes he doesn't do what in the core of he, his being he now desires. And let me just ask you, can any one of you relate to this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah right? This is, this is our reality. And this church is one of those ways that you know that you're a Christian. It's one of the ways. We know what God wants us to do. We want to do what God wants us to do. But sometimes we do the opposite and we hate it. We hate it. We despise it. This is one of the ways that we can know we're a Christian. If we hate when we screw up, if we hate when we don't do what we really want to do in the core of our being, we fail and we acknowledge before God, man, I, I did not want to do that. That is not good. That's not what I wanted. It was a moment of weakness, a moment of the flesh. This, folks, is the reality of Romans 7. Romans 7 is not setting an idea forth of sinless perfection that you and I can achieve in this life. We can't. It is setting forth a struggle with sin that you and I have been awakened to, that we have been empowered to fight in this life. It is cluing us in also to the one of the greatest gifts that God has given to believers. It's one of the greatest gifts of Christmas. New desires. New desires. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about how Christ has recreated him. He is a new creation. The old is dead and gone. The new has come and with it, new desires. New wants. 
Before, he didn't know about God. He didn't even care about God's law. He was mistaken about what God wanted. But now, even though he isn't perfect, he isn't always successful, deep down, he delights in God and he delights in God's law. He desires to do what it says. He does not argue with the scriptures. No, here's what it really means. It didn't actually mean that. Well, that's not fun. That's going to sap all our joy, right? Arguing about interpretations. He says, no, what God said, I love it. I want to live it. I don't always. But man, I want to. And let me just say, this is not a have to for Paul. This is not a legalistic thing. Uh, He has to do these things. No, it's a get to. For Paul, he does not have to read his Bible. He gets to. He wants to. For Paul, he does not have to gather with believers in church regularly. He does not have to do that. He wants to. He gets to. He doesn't have to tithe or be generous or serve. He wants to. He gets to. He doesn't always follow through on these new desires, but he wants to. He's been freed up to feed the Spirit more than his flesh and progress comes from it. Not perfection, but progress. You can think of it like this. I went on a missions trip a long time ago. I'm getting old. feels like not that long time ago, but it was. It was my my days of college, so going on about 10 years. I spent a month in Ethiopia at an orphanage with my, my college. The professor that led that group was a really, really cool guy. Strong believer. I could tell you a lot about his faith and stuff, but what stuck out to me most was his dieting habits, right? He wasn't one of those annoying dieters, right? They got all the weird new fancy things that they show up and it's like, well, we can't have this because, you know what I mean? Like, right? He wasn't, he wasn't in your face with it, but what he ate was noticeable. Noticeable enough that I asked him about it. Say, hey, man, I noticed you kind of, you do your own thing with the food and, and all that. You're quiet. You're not in your face with it. What, what's going on here? And he said, well, I used to be an athlete and I used to be young. And so I was young and active and I could eat whatever I wanted. Right? I didn't think anything about it. But as time went by, I got less young and I got less active. And my doctor eventually told me that if you don't start changing things, that history of heart disease that exists in your family is going to get you. So he, started, he said, I started to make a radical change in the ways that I ate. He said, now it's only vegetables, fruit, and a little bit of chicken. I was like, okay, good for you, right? And I just had to ask him, I said, what about, what about beef? What about beef? I mean, beef is good, right? What, what, about, what about the dead cow? Are you just you eliminating that out of your, what about steak? And he said, no, I, he said, all red meats. I cut it out. And I remember telling him, I don't know if I could do that. And by the way, I haven't done that. I still, big fan of dead cow, right? <laughs> big fan. <laughs> Love them. So good. I still eat that, Right? And that's not my point. I'm not saying we should all cut out red meat. That's between you and your doctor, all of that. But I'll never forget what he told me. Because as he said it, I thought, that's going to preach someday. That'll preach. He said, Levi, it was really hard at first. Because growing up, I had developed an appetite, a taste, a desire for junk. For junk. That is what I craved. And it was hard at first. It was hard. But eventually, you know what? My tastes changed. My desires changed. They changed. I never forgot that. It's a great life lesson. Eventually, our tastes, our desires change. 
depending on what we feed our appetites, eventually our tastes change. And I asked him, I love steak. I asked him, I said, have you just, have you, have you snuck it ever? Like, have you ever? And he said, yeah, I still miss it. A year ago, I went to a party and I thought, you know what? I'm just, I'm going to live a little bit. I ordered a big, nice T-bone steak. He said, my mind said yes, but my body said no. And I spent the rest of the night in the bathroom, right? Spent the rest of the night in the bathroom. The flesh said yes. He relapsed on his diet. He splurged on one of those old habits, on one of those old tastes, and he hated himself for it. Folks, this is the story of the Christian. This is the story of the Christian life. We lose our appetites for our old sinful habits. And even if we fail or we fall back into them occasionally, that reality makes us sick. It makes us sick. Why? Because our tastes have changed. Because Jesus has given us the gift of new desires. Again, the greatest Christmas gift we get when we come to Jesus are new desires. The old sinful things that used to please us and give us happiness just don't anymore. Or if they do, it's so fleeting, it's not worth it. Not only that, but we recognize that while sin may have brought some pleasure, it was never without its outside, or it was never without its side effects, right? And so now, having been recreated by faith in Jesus alone, we recognize we have new desires for new and better, more pure sources of joy without all the negative side effects. And while we may succumb to these old urges from time to time, we do not celebrate it. We do not celebrate the old sinful habits that sometimes die hard. The new man and the spirit inside of us hates those things. We reject them. We repent from them ongoing and continually we agree with the father that is wrong i should not have done it i praise you for the forgiveness that you purchased for me on the cross of jesus christ by his blood and i ask you by the power of your spirit and the resurrection life that lives in me to keep on following you and to reject that old habit and that old way of life here's my point life as a christian it ain't easy It's a struggle. It's a fight. And it's one apart from Jesus and his indwelling spirit that we get through faith that we do not have the power or desire in us to do what the Lord wants. And folks, that is the whole point of Christmas. That is the whole point of Christmas. We live in a world that thinks we can just try really hard to be a good person. We think that if we can just help enough people, then our lives will count. And if we believe in God, that that will be enough to get us into heaven at the end. But it's not. We can't be good enough. We can't help enough people. Paul says in verse 18, good itself does not dwell in us. doesn't matter how good we look on the outside. If you're a Christian here this morning, The Bible says there is no good in us. It continues, he says, the good I want to do, I don't have the power to do it. And the evil I don't want to do, I keep on doing it. Friends, that would be hopeless. That would be a hopeless thing if we stopped there. 
But praise Jesus, Paul does not stop there. He continues and he brings the Christmas and the gospel. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, he says, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. In this season of Christmas, this is exactly what we celebrate. You and I never could pull ourselves up to God by our bootstraps. No. He had to come to us. And that is precisely what he did through Christ. And when we come to him, like the wise men, bearing gifts, we don't come with frankincense, gold, or myrrh. We bring our lives. We come with ourselves. We come with our fears. We come with our faith. We come with our surrender and we present ourselves to Jesus as king. And we surrender knowing that we can't live this life without him. And friends, when we come to Jesus the way the wise men came, acknowledging Jesus' lordship and presenting ourselves and our lives to him as a gift, then he promises to recreate us. He gives us new hearts. I like to say he gives us new wanters. He gives us new desires to follow him and to live with him forever. And I, for one, praise him for Romans 7 because it sets all of this in reality. Following Jesus is not all rainbows and unicorns. It doesn't always look like victory. It doesn't always look like sinful perfection. A lot of times it looks like weakness and struggling. But it's a struggle that we can make progress in. And as you and I learn to feed the Spirit of Christ more and more inside of us rather than the flesh and sin, He promises that He will change our appetites. He will change us. And at the end of all of it, regardless of where we're at in weakness or strength, regardless of where we're at, we can rest in the fact that Jesus, who came as a baby, ministered and served and died as a man, he rose to life as God, and he lives and will continue to work in our lives to rescue and deliver us from our old ways of sin. This is Christmas, church. It's what we're here to celebrate this morning. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the love that you showed through Christ. Thank you for our children that reminded us that it's Jesus' birthday. And that apart from his birthday, apart from his birth, we are utterly hopeless. But you did not stay far off and distant. You came to us because we could never, ever, ever, ever get to you apart from this work. I pray, Father, that as we struggle with sin, that you would continually be giving us the gift of Christmas, new desires. Thank you for the promise to recreate us in the fashion of Christ through the power of your Spirit. 
Thank you for the truth you've declared that when we come to Christ in faith, you declare the old is dead and gone and the new has come. Help us to live new. And Father, when we fail, let us never celebrate those failures. Let us embrace the grace and forgiveness poured out through Jesus' death and resurrection. Let us turn from our old wicked ways of sin and live delighting in your law. It's for your glory, Lord. For our joy, we ask this. In your name, amen.